Hello, friends. This is Michael Bohm with Youth Apologetics Training. Uh, today, we're going to have a guest. We're going to be talking with David Harrison of Spark Light Planet Ministries. David is a creation science educator slash speaker, uh, speaking all over the, the northern Colorado area. Hey, that's my own backyard. In fact, that's how I found David Harrison. Uh, if you guys remember back, uh, this was a little while back, I had a foster child staying at our home. Uh, and at the time, she was going to a, well, she's still going to, a local school slash college. Interesting uh place. But whatever the case, a science teacher actually got uh, David Harrison to come in and speak to a science class uh, for several days in a row. And uh, this foster girl of ours really got excited. Uh, she would come home and bring these packets of information that David would share with them uh, and would talk about it at the, at the kitchen table during dinner time. Well, when she moved out, those packets uh, stayed at our house. I discovered them recently and realized, wow, you know, there is a creation science speaker right here in our backyard. So David Harrison, again, Spark Light Planet, his website, sparklightplanet.com, uh, author of uh, uh, a book, Spark Light Planet. Uh, we'll be talking about that a little bit today uh, as well. Really nice website. Very well done. Uh, in fact, he is a graphic designer as well. Uh, so uh, he has uh, taken some elements of graphic design to the creation uh, evangelism movement. And I think he's done a, a fantastic job of making the subject uh, interesting as well as, well, very beautiful looking. <laughs> so anyway, today we're going to be talking about uh, dinosaurs and the Bible. Uh, and so with that, David Harrison, welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Thank you, Michael. So uh, friends, today we're going to be talking about dinosaurs and mankind living and coexisting together. I know this is this is a concept that uh, really can scramble the brain a little bit. Uh, when we look at the scriptures, we see that, well, for example, Jesus said that from the beginning, uh, he created them male and female. In other words, uh, mankind goes all the way back to the beginning of creation. We also know that the Bible describes six literal 24-hour days, or if you want to get technical, um, six literal earth rotations, uh, that were for the creation of everything, the universe and all that in that is, <laughs> if you will. And also we know that from Genesis chapters 5 and 11, there are genealogies that go all the way back to Adam and come forward to Abraham. And uh, from Abraham, we're able to, for the most part, give or take a few hundred years, can date from there to the present day. Um, so in other words, the Bible seems to suggest very clearly, I might add, a young earth. But dinosaurs seem to be a problem because even from a child, we uh, are taught that dinosaurs lived millions of years ago. You can pick up any children's dinosaur book, unless it comes from Answers in Genesis, and it will start with the words millions of years ago. 
Um, when we grow older, we learn in our textbooks, junior high, high school, college, that again, dinosaurs lived millions of years ago. Um, and that seems to be a massive stumbling block for many believers. In fact, when I was a young believer, that really troubled me. How could that possibly be? I pull up at a stoplight. Here I am with my Jesus fish on the back of my car, and I look over and I see somebody with a T-Rex eating a, G, uh, a Jesus fish on the back of their car. And it's kind of a little, it's a gut punch. It's like, ooh, gosh, yeah, how do we deal with that? Well, today, friends, uh, with David Harrison, we're going to be talking about dinosaurs and mankind coexisting. There is uh, uh, substantial evidence to show that that actually did, in fact, happen. I know it's a little shocking at first, but that's what we're going to be exploring today. And um, I have reason to believe this might uh, spill over into a second podcast. So uh, we really want to get down and dirty with this and look at um, many different lines of evidence that suggest uh, that dinosaurs and mankind really did coexist. So, so David, um, what can we see from science that would suggest that mankind and uh, dinosaurs coexisted? Yeah, um, I can bring up five areas of evidence. Another reason that this is important, this even enters into politics and education. Um, yeah. This, I, one of the reasons I wrote my article, Why Claiming Humans and Dinosaurs Coexistence Isn't Ridiculous, is because I saw interviews with politicians in Texas, and that was one of the questions they would get. If, if people found out they were they were of a a Christian faith, they would always ask him this question. Do you believe dinosaurs existed with man and dinosaurs in the Bible? And they'd be like, well, yes. And then they'd basically just laugh at them. And I'm like, we need to equip these people with something that says it's not ridiculous. There's actually um, evidence that, that shows it's possible and probable. Okay? Right. And, that, uh, and unless we actually had a dinosaur walking with us, it wouldn't be 100% factual. But we can show the probability is is there. So the five different areas um, would be soft tissue, and we'll get into that with the Tyrannosaurus uh, rex, Triceratops, Hadrosaurs, and others, um, carbon-14 dating, uh, proteins and DNA, something I call genetic degeneration or degeneration theory. Um, this is essentially that everything is breaking down genetically. It's called genetic entropy. And also, in the fossil record, almost um, a majority of the fossils we find of the creatures we have today are bigger, better, and stronger in the past. And so there's actually um, fossil record that things are degenerating and not growing as big and as robust. And that leads us to the last evidence, which is fossils themselves. Um, we find um, many different areas where dinosaurs have birds in their stomach. Dinosaurs are hmm. fish. Um, dinosaurs, there's ostrich tracks that are in layers older than dinosaurs and different things like that. So they're called out-of-place artifact, artifacts or anomalies, but they're only out of place for the natural progressive evolutionary <laughs> worldview. That's right. So, okay, well, let's look at the soft tissue. All right. Um, this is actually a quote from Dr. Mary Schweitzer, and she's the one who, in a T-Rex femur bone, around 2005, um, started, uh, she actually took and dissolved the, um, the calcification um, so that the soft tissues would show. And she says, the problem is for 300 years, we thought, well, the organics are all gone. So why should we look for something that's not going to be there? And nobody looks. And that's a quote from her. 
from the Nature Online magazine. And so she even admits, why haven't we found these things before? It's because we weren't looking. Because they actually treat bones, dinosaur bones, with different minerals that would destroy soft tissue inside of them. And so most of the bones that we have of dinosaurs have been treated um, so that they're preserved even longer. And it's pretty much destroyed all the soft tissue inside of them. And she herself has been, um, after she made, came out with these discoveries, there's only one person that will let her look at his dinosaur fossil collections. <sighs> and so she herself, though she is still what I would call a hardline, deep-timer um, evolutionist, has been uh, very much ostracized in that community because what she's bringing up um, is really shaking the boat. Now, if you look at the scientific literature and papers, they're very reluctant to call these things blood cells, um, osteocyte, which is a bone cell itself. Um, so they're very... They're, they're, it's, it's funny if you actually read interviews with Schweitzer. She's like, yeah, that's what these things are now. But other people are very reluctant to actually call them um, those things. They're like, well, they're, they're, they could be, you know, iron. Um, they could be other things, but they, they look like blood cells, but they're very reluctant to actually call them those things because if they mm. call them those things, it would invalidate the fossil record, which is what millions of years is built on for planet Earth. Because if you collapse the fossil record, you lose deep time. You lose the millions of years you need for the natural progressive evolution. That's why this wow, is a huge issue. Yeah, yeah, and, and and you see this intellectual dishonesty woven throughout this debate. Um, the fact that uh, she's being ostracized, uh, she's only allowed to see one particular guy's um, um, fossil collection. And I, I found that interesting too. I've, I've never heard that the process uh, that these bones go through actually destroys any potential soft tissue, and that's part of. I suppose that's part of the problem as well. It's yeah. like we're destroying our own evidence. Yeah, it, actually, that means that natural progressive evolution has been a science stopper. That's correct. Have, that is absolutely we correct. Looked. We haven't looked for this because that theory told us it's not there. Don't even look. So it actually hinders right. scientific progress in that. Now, Schweitzer has done some more research. Um, she's trying to figure out how these um, soft tissues could be preserved for anywhere between 69, 65 to 133 million years. Um, she said iron could, possi could possibly be the solution. They did a lot of experiments um, because there's iron in the blood, and iron can act a little bit like um, formaldehyde in preservation of tissue. So they actually did it with some ostrich bones, and they were able to preserve it for about two years pretty well by putting it in an intense iron solution. But people just don't get the difference between two and millions. <laughs> Here's an example. Continents, um, even the evolutionists say a continent should erode flat and get subducted and recycled in about 14 million years. A whole continent. Right. That, that should blow your mind. Um, but here's one of the challenges I brought in my article is, why are we finding dinosaur boats in 70 million year old rock and older if a continent should only be about 15 to 20 million years old? themselves exactly and that to me is I'm like that's an interesting question <laughs> so the soft tissue is amazing um, another scientist that's working with this is Mark Armitage 
Um, he works with the Creation Research Science Institute. They have, um, in the Hell Creek Formation in Montana, they've dug up a triceratops occipital horn, and they found soft tissue inside of that. Um, they've um, removed the, the calcium deposits and different stuff, and um, he's been able to, um, on video, stretch out this material, and then it comes back together. They've been able to cross-section it and look at the little uh, tiny osteocyte bone cells inside. And so that's a very exciting research that's going on in just these last couple of years. And so um, as we find out areas where these things are preserved, I think the research is going to just get more and more interesting. Wow. Wow, that's fascinating. Um is there anybody else who is studying these soft tissues, finding soft tissues? You know, that's a good question. Um, I'm sure as this picks up and gets funding, because in the science world, everything is built upon funding um, for your research. Um, I'm hoping that we'll have people in China, uh, people in other places in the world picking this up. And something I found is there's a lot of fossil finds that don't fit the evolutionary theory that we don't find out about in America. They're blocked from the scientific journals. They're not reported. But China reports them. Um, India reports them. Um, the Arab nations report them. And so what some of our most interesting um, cross-species uh, fossils come from outside of America. And that, to me, is kind of interesting in that we're falling behind in this discipline because of this theory. Oh, wow. Our, our presuppositions, our, our, yeah. our theories are, are actually blocking science moving forward. Yeah, we're, we're blocking fossil evidence because it doesn't fit our, our uh, cultural... <laughs> um, Uniformitarian yeah. Uh, philosophies, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, so um, the protein and DNA finds, um, this is also connected with Mary Schweitzer, and um, they've been able to uh, go in and examine these and say, no, these aren't... These aren't um, other biological proteins, they're not from bacteria. These are actually from the dinosaurs. Um, they found amino acid uh, structures which make up DNA. And so that's really exciting. It's also very controversial, but it's really exciting to kind of see where this is going to take us. It's very far from anything Jurassic Park-like, being able to actually recode the DNA and make something living. Um, but our understanding of this is is growing and so they are scrambling to try to figure out how these things can be preserved for millions of years. I think it's even amazing that these things have lasted for a couple thousand years. So, well, yeah, well, yeah, and, and maybe I'm a geek for bringing this up, but um, <clears throat> just in the uh, organic gardening that I do in my backyard, when I bury stuff in the soil, uh, it, 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 it becomes soil very rapidly mm -hmm. <laughs> and you know the bacteria attacks it the little worms attack it uh all the different microorganisms they go after it, it's food yeah and they chomp it up and they make nice fluffy soil for my garden to grow in yeah. um and and you know you look out in the world these dinosaurs they died in tropical environments why are their bones still intact why are we finding soft tissue because this stuff decomposes mm -hmm. And um, they've addressed that to some extent. They essentially say it has to be rapid burial. Which okay. I wonder what what um, 
what could have done that. Um, rapid burial. Um, also, um, uh, probably a heated sediment, a sediment that's okay. hot because it's essentially like the canning process. Imagine the bone is the outside of the can, and then soft tissues are in the inside. And what that does, if it's buried in a hot sediment and um, essentially cooked, it kills off the bacteria, and then it preserves the tissue inside. And so oh, wow. it's actually a natural canning process that um, can aid to this preservation. You don't want to have very much water in the sediments because the H2O water breaks down so many things. And so it's really a pretty rare, I think that's why we're finding a lot of these soft tissues in the, the Hell Creek Formation um, in Montana. And that's kind of the hotbed of where to look. And that's probably because that was probably one of the most recent um, deposits. And I don't have a lot of evidence for that, but that would make sense versus some of the more older deposits um, and different things. So that's one of the best theories I've come across so far as far as how these things have been preserved. Interesting. So, and then that leads us to um, the, the, one of the other great evidences is carbon-14. Now, carbon-14 dating has been used for a long time. Um, it's gone through its popularity, and then people kind of saying, oh, it doesn't work at all. But we've been able to, with new machines, get a much more accurate reading. And so there's been some great studies showing that carbon-14 has been found not only in dinosaur bones, but in um, coal and diamond deposits, which are below dinosaur fossil layers, so even older. And even in the, the website for um, the National Center for Science Education, or propaganda, you could say, says about <laughs> 20,000 years. That's, that's the limit of carbon-14 dating before it gets really inaccurate. Um, to be generous, it's about 100,000 years. And then you should have no more carbon-14 in it. Uh, hey, really, really quick, could you explain uh, how carbon-14 works? Yeah. Uh, how this process is done? Okay, so in our atmosphere, we have... Um, carbon-12, when the sun um, rays hits it, it becomes carbon-14, radioactive, essentially. That becomes ingested by animals while they're alive. So all of us are actually radioactive right now, to a very small extent. Um, so when an animal dies, they stop ingesting carbon-14, and that decays to carbon-12. And so that can be measured. Now, the assumptions are is the ratio in the atmosphere of carbon-12 to carbon-14 should be equal. But something we find is it's about 20% out of equilibrium, which either means the Earth is less than 30,000 years old, which is what most scientists say that's about how long it should take to reach equilibrium in the atmosphere. It's like filling up a sink with holes. There's, you're going to have a time when the water level stays exactly the same because it's pouring through the other hole. And so with carbon-14, um, it decays in the half-life it, it will decay all the way and become pretty much extinct in a fossil or an organism in about 60,000 years to 100,000 years. And so the fact that we're finding detectable amounts and measurable amounts in dinosaur bones that are supposed to be a gazillion times older um, is amazing. And it's, it's one of, I consider one of the best scientific evidences for um, those things being young. Now, the ratio is out of equilibrium so that either means the Earth is less than 30,000 years old or the equilibrium is fluctuating, it means the ratios in the atmosphere fluctuate, and that messes up your time clock as well. 
And so, um, also the amount of organic matter, plants, um, you know, on the, on the planet, um, can affect that ratio. So for example, if we had a world hmm, with more atmospheric pressure, uh, a more greenhouse environment, more land mass, which is what the Bible describes, you have very different ratios and that would make the carbon dates actually date much younger. So hmm. the 20 to 50,000 year date would actually be more of a 6,000 date, if that makes sense, when those ratios are... Oh, okay. Now, what about um, potentially uh, lots of water being involved with this? Um, these samples would that also perhaps mess with the dates a little bit? Um, yeah, there's there's various other things that can affect carbon fourteen dating heat. Like if it's buried in a in a volcanic flow, the heat can mess oh, yeah. with the C fourteen ratios. Leaching um, can pull out some different things. So there's quite a few things, but the most interesting thing is. Um, we pretty much have a standard dating working with carbon-14. So if we date, for example, a Neanderthal bone and a dinosaur bone and we get similar dates, that's really good evidence they lived during the same time period. And that's exactly what we're finding. There's a great study. Um, you can find it on dinosaurc14ages.com or um, newgeology.us and... Um, They've done a study comparing um, mammal bones, human bones, and dinosaur bones, and also see reptiles from the dinosaur period. And we have dinosaurs that are getting younger than the than the human Neanderthal bones are. And so that is an, a, a great study, and it fits with um, a lot of the fossil finds that we're finding. We're finding mammals with dinosaurs and different things like that. Ah, now, yeah, I would love to talk about that a little bit as we go. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I guess stick with the C14 for a moment. So um, so that's carbon-14. Um, you can look up pretty much on creation.com or Answers in Genesis. Um, there are carbon-14 studies on this. And um, the actual dating that we get back. And so that that is a very um, interesting and hard science um, that is, is dating humans and dinosaurs and other mammals that were not supposed to be around concurrently at the same time period. So do you have some uh, specific examples of dating uh, dinosaur bones, uh, C14, and um, getting young ages? Yeah. Um, for example, um, a hadrosaur... Um, let's see. are about 25,000 years. Um, the Neanderthal bones dated at 50,000 and 40,000. But the dinosaur bones from Hadrosaurus to Triceratops to Allosaurus are dating right around 30, 30, uh, 23,000, uh, 36,000. Um, you kind of have to match up. They've got, um, you know, specific numbers with these tables. Stuff. So, um, and they also they also did a cross study where they had some contaminated bones, um, so that they made sure that these dates were actually accurate. Um, so, um, because they knew people would come back and be like, "Oh, you know, there's contamination going on," and they were able to show that you know the contamination actually dates these things even younger. Um, but 
you can tell the difference um, with things that have been contaminated. So, right. Um, and they address that in their paper as well. So, so this takes us to, I think, a, a very interesting field of science of genetics. And this, the theory of genetic degeneration or genetic entropy. And this has really been brought out by a book by Dr. J.C. Stanford. Um, it's called Genetic Entropy and the Mystery of the Genome. And he brings out that with natural selection with mutations, um, it's actually destroying genetic material. So if you think about, um, here's a good example, cheetahs. Uh, cheetahs today are almost exact clones of each other. They've lost genetic variability, and so if they, if the environment changes, they won't be able to adapt to that environment, and they'll go extinct. So they'll go extinct not not just because their environment changed, but because their genetics have been so impoverished, they can't adapt anymore. Huh. You see this with dog breeding. Um, you have like an ancestral kind of dog, kind of like a wolf. Now we've bred out chihuahuas and poodles. A chihuahua and a poodle can't survive in nature anymore. They have to be protect, protected. And you can never genetically rebreed them back to a wolf because they've lost too much genetic information. And so what we actually see is a ancestral kind speciating and those species losing genetic information and going extinct because they can't adapt to their environment anymore. Hmm. And so that's essentially the and so, if we apply this to humans, like Dr. J.C. Stanford does, is all of us have between 100 and 3,000 mutations in us right now. And natural selection only pulls out mutations that are on the organism level, not on the genetic level. So, for example, if, if I have a mutation that um, causes sickle cell anemia, I'll die out, that won't get carried on. It affects the whole organism. But there's a lot of mutations that don't get selected out and build up and build up and build up. And if that happens to an extent where it kills you before you can procreate, you go extinct. Right. And, and these are all examples of de-evolution. Yeah. As in, we're, we're getting slower, smaller, and dumber. <laughs> yeah. So that's why and more. I would say I'm a supernatural creationist and a degenerative evolutionist. Yeah. There you because go. throw people, they're like, you're an evolutionist too? I'm like, yes, it's, it's, a, it's actually the saviors of evolution, mutations, and natural selection are actually the villains. Because um, there's great examples, like, for example, a day fly has lost its mouth because um, it didn't need it to survive, so natural selection pulled it out. There's fish in caves that have lost their eyes and their skin pigmentation because they didn't need it to survive, natural selection pulled it out. They've actually transplanted, transplanted eyes to those fish, and it takes, and they have eyes again. So it's wow. something that the genetics is there, but the switches have been turned off by natural selection. And then we now, when they, trans, when they transplant those eyes, the fish don't uh, reproduce and produce more fish with eyes, though, right? Uh, no, no, it's not. Very <laughs> <no word>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that leads us to the fossil record. Um, there's the concept of uh, greater ancestors, and um, I came across a website, and we'll be talking more about this, is greaterancestors.com. They've gone through different museums, different fossil records, and actually shown that um, many of the fossils that we have, of animals we have today, are two or three times bigger. Um, cheetahs right. were twice as big 
um, and even human skulls that are bigger. And that basically means that sometime in the past, we had what's called optimal genetic expression. You'd be the biggest and the best that you could be in the best environment. And that has degenerated genetically and environmentally. Um, that's degenerated. And so that is, to me, one of the most exciting fields of science is this field of degeneration theory. And um, on my website, darklightplanet.com, I have a book from Peter Steele. He's a he's a, a writer, a youth pastor, a scientist from Norway. And his book goes into some of the genetics and then also examples of animals who are losing features. And so his book, Degeneration, is also a great book on this topic. Uh, it's It's interesting that you bring up Greater Ancestors, uh, I have been going back and forth with Chris Leslie mm-hmm. of Greater Ancestors, and it looks like we have an interview uh, with Chris coming up in the near future uh, talking about giants, giant plants, giant animals, and yeah. giant humans. Um, yeah. That is going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's amazing. We have dragonflies in the fossil record with a three-foot wingspan. Um, we have other insects, cockroaches, other insects that are much bigger. And the only way they can grow that big is if you have more atmospheric pressure and a thicker ozone layer, which helps um, the thicker ozone layer helps cause the atmospheric pressure, but also blocks out a lot of the radiation that's harmful to life and causes mutations. And the more atmospheric pressure you have, a larger um, insect can grow, larger plants can grow, and trees as well. And um, so there's some fascinating research going on with biospheres, hyperbaric chambers, and other things like that. Huh, fascinating. Yeah, it, it sounds like along the lines of what we hear um, in Kent Hovind's uh, creation series, I think it was his second part to his series, mm-hmm. uh, he, did, he talked quite a bit about the different atmosphere and how plants and animals seem to live longer and grow larger. Yeah. Yeah, so we so, have some really good fossil evidence of definitely a, a different atmosphere. And even sports teams use hyperbaric chambers to help their um, their people heal quicker. And if you lived in that kind of environment, it would oxygenate your plasma, you would heal quicker, and you could run forever without getting tired. So it's really an optimal environment for us to live in. And our environment today, our atmosphere today, would be toxic to those people back then. It's how different it is. Well, the Bible does describe people living for hundreds of years, mm-hmm. um, and things have changed. Something changed. Yeah. Uh, whether you know, some might believe it was just a supernatural curse, as in God just changed our timeline, but He also might have just changed the environment. Yeah, um, have, and, and yeah, we have environmental changes, which I think went to the extinction of many animals, including the dinosaurs, um, because when you have rapid climate change, um, animals have a hard time adapting, and some of the hardest um, the animals that have a hardest time adapting are reptiles um, to different environments, whether it's cold um, or wet or heat or dry or different things like that. And, <laughs> I've, learned, I've learned that the hard way, but anyway, go on. <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll know some of that. Um, but yeah, the, the ages of, of the Old Testament that seems to indicate they lived for long periods, uh, part of it was they were genetically superior. Um, and that enabled them to live longer. And that's part of genetic degeneration theory that J.C. Stanford shows in his book as well. He actually graphs 
the degeneration um, scientifically and shows how that graph matches up with the degeneration of lifespan in the Bible. Huh. Fascinating. So, yeah, great book. Okay. So uh, what about, um, uh, um, you mentioned in the, the geologic column, in the layers, we're finding uh, animals that should not have lived millions of years ago when the dinosaurs were living in the same layers as dinosaurs. We're finding uh, man and dinosaur tracks together in some layers. And do you want to expand on that? Yeah, there's a great book called Man, Dinosaurs, and Mammals Together. Um, from the Mount Blanco Fossil Museum. And um, so some excerpts from that are that, um, uh, see if I get this dinosaur name right, um, Demetron. Um, it's a large <laughs> dinosaur with a large big sail on its back. Um, Dimetrodon, Dimetrodon, I, yeah, I don't know either. So anyway, these guys are supposed to have lived... Um, about 299 to 251 million years ago, but we've actually found our bird tracks and bear tracks along with those dinosaurs. In the Grand Canyon, we found horse hoofprints um, in rock layers supposedly 100 million years before hoof animals were supposed to appear in the fossil record. And then in Nova Scotia at Blue Beach, um, they found ostrich tracks, um, which are supposedly... Uh, 350 million years old, and that's, you know, long before dinosaurs were supposed to be on, on the scene. And um, then also in the phosphate rocks of South Carolina, the uh, Great Carolina mile bed, um, they've, this is where that found, they found these, these ostrich footprints and other things. And so they've also found many plants um, in layers that are not supposed to have existed yet. And so um, one of my favorite creation guys, Ian Juby, brings this out with the coelacanth. Um, it's in the fossil record supposedly 79 years ago. It disappears. And it shows up alive today. So did that mean <laughs> the coelacanth actually disappeared for 70 million years? No, it just means it was fossilized then in, that, in, in the deep time theory of things. Um, but it doesn't mean it wasn't in existence even before that or even after that. It's just when it was actually fossilized. And so he's able to show that just because the thing is fossilized in a certain layer doesn't mean it didn't exist before and it didn't exist after. Right. And that pretty much invalidates how the evolutionists read the fossil record. Because they say, oh, if it showed up here, you know, it couldn't have been in existence before that or it died out because we can't find it anymore. But we're finding things alive. We're finding plants that are still alive that are millions of years old in the supposed fossil record. So, um, so that's, that's amazing. Um, some, some great things that I bring out actually with the fossil record, which we'll get into a little bit here, are what evidences in the fossil, fossil record do we have of coexistence? Um, we actually have dinosaurs with birds in their stomach. So mm. one of the big propaganda things now is that dinosaurs evolved into birds. How can you evolve into your breakfast? Into something that you're a dinosaur, you're eating birds. Okay? And we're actually finding bird tracks and birds before dinosaurs in the fossil record. So that's very interesting. What about humans? Um, there are several different um, trackways. There's um, at least four different sites 
um, where there's different trackways. And um, this is on in my article as well. Um, but a lot of those trackways um, show humans and dinosaur footprint, footprints together. And then there's even trackways of human footprints, like the latest holy footprints discovered by Mary Leakey, which are supposed to be, uh, I'm not sure exactly the age, but they say these are pre-human footprints, but they look exactly like human footprints. So we have footprints that are millions of years old, supposedly, that aren't supposed to be human, that look exactly human. And there's many different types of that. So, um, so there's the Patton Trail, uh, the Taylor Trail, um, and, and some different areas. And uh, Bible.ca is a great site to explore some of that as well. We also have, historically, the Lady of Guadalupe in the British Museum of Natural History was dated in Miocene limestone at 28 million years old. Now, she was on, uh, this was on exhibit for many, many years in the British Museum of Natural History. Now, it's gone. But it was in newspapers, magazines, well documented, but for some reason they took it off display. I wonder why. <laughs> oh, boy. So it's really fun to explore those different things. Um, one, some great books on this um, is called Dire Dragons. And they go into, um, this is from Vance Nelson, and he goes into dragon figurines all over the earth. The other one that he's written is called Flood Fossils, and he actually shows horses buried with fish, dinosaurs buried with fish, um, many other um, insects buried uh, together. So he actually shows that there's a lot of um, different ecosystems buried together. And what I mean by that is fish, plants, dinosaurs, mammals, all buried together. And so when evolutionary scientists actually come across this, they write it off as an anomaly. Um, they write it off as uh, cross-bedding, which means this must have been eroded and then redeposited. And so they have an explanation for it, but most of the times it, it really doesn't hold up. Um, well, right, right. What evidence is there of cross-bedding? Like when they say that, when they talk about some of this erosion, is there actually evidence of erosion or, I mean, you know, a lot of these, these fossil finds, are, they're right next to each other in the same layer. There's no cracks. There's no erosion. Yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's a, what I would call a desperate explanation. And yeah, I think, I think you have to really trust the people who are out in the field. Um, and that's the thing with science. We're trusting human integrity. We're trusting that they don't have agendas, and we've learned that people have agendas, and so that really bends the evidence to their agenda. Right. A little, a little off topic, but something you brought up in your in your uh, packet. Oh, what is it called here? It is the uh, why can't claiming humans and dinosaurs coexisted isn't ri ridiculous. Again, friends, you can find that on his website, SparklightPlanet.com. Um, but one of the, I'm sorry. It's in the article section. Oh, yeah. Website. One of the points you brought up that I've never heard anybody mention before uh, is, well, okay, we know that uh, animals and plants are going extinct. Um, we find so many different plants and animals in the fossil record that are completely extinct. You can't find them anywhere nowadays. But 
Um, you know, and, and that's what we should expect in a biblical worldview where everything is breaking down, entropy is taking over, and, and you know, our, our, our genetics are, are getting more and more diluted. Um, but if this evolutionary paradigm is true and we're getting bigger and better and smarter and more healthy and living longer and this and that and the other, and we're moving forward, mm-hmm. we should find many plants and animals that alive today that do not exist in the fossil record. (laughs) Correct? Yeah. If Darwin's degree of life is correct, you should start out with these very simple organisms and then more complex, more diversified, more different kinds of creatures. And so when we look back in the fossil record, we should see, um, we should see animals, we should see animals alive today that are nowhere in the fossil record. But we find the opposite. We find tons of animals in the fossil record they're nowhere around today. And so it's actually the opposite. We find a vast diversity of animals in the fossil record, and only a few of them are alive today. So we find exactly the opposite of what we should expect from the Darwinian tree of life. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned some other lines of evidence uh, that... that um, show that humans and dinosaurs have coexisted. Um, yeah, I think, um, so we've, we've covered pretty much the scientific evidence from soft tissues, carbon-14, proteins, DNA, the, the genetic degeneration, and the fossils. Um, the other is pretty much the archaeological and historic, and that's where the Bible comes in, because the Bible is one of those, um, you could say, historic um, records, and... Um, what does it say about um, this? Because it claims to be I'm pretty old in parts. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we can afford that. Well, what is okay? Bible. The Bible does have instances uh, that appear like perhaps there might be a dinosaur uh, uh, being described. Let's look at the Bible. Okay. Um, yeah, when we look at the Bible, we're going to run into Hebrew and Greek. And Hebrew and Greek, there's two main words used, um, are translated as dragons, serpents, um, and different things. And so um, there's also two other words, specific names, behemoth and leviathan, that show up. But the Hebrew words, um, Titan is translated serpent or dragon quite often. And um, in the Greek, it is dracon, um, which is pretty close to dragon. Um, that means a serpent-like creature in the Greek. And so you have to really look at context when we're looking at these words. Um, context is everything in the Bible. And if you can find a description, that's even better. And so Job, I think, is very fascinating because um, in the genealogies, um, Job could possibly be um, Jobab, the brother of Jochten, and he is right around the days of Peleg and Heber, which would be um, after the flood, and um, so it puts him right around the Tower of Babel. Um, Peleg, the division, could be um, ocean levels rising, the end of the Ice Age, um, it could be just division of people, different things like that. But that puts Job kind of in that time period. And so what's amazing in Job 40 and 41, there's descriptions of other animals too. 
everyday animals like goats, um, donkeys, and other things like that. And then what shows up? Behemoth or biophon. And, and it gets the descriptions of these guys that are pretty, pretty fascinating. And um, so I would say that is, that's probably one of the, the best areas of the Bible that talks about creatures. Um, Leviathan shows up in Psalms and um, in, um, also in Isaiah. Um, Isaiah 27, Leviathan shows up. And so um, I'll just read Isaiah 27, 1. It's talking about the deliverance of Israel. It says, In the day the Lord will punish with his sword the fierce and great and powerful Leviathan, the gliding serpent, the Leviathan, the coiling serpent. He will save the monsters of the sea. Um, so this this creature, whatever it was, is used in Bible literature to exemplify um, enemies of Israel and enemies of God. It's something fierce that's uh, very scary. And it doesn't mean it wasn't a real creature, because they're using it to crucify Egypt in the Psalms several times, um, or even uh, Satan, the great serpent, later in Revelations and things like that. So um, the other passage, which is um, what we call Apocrypha, and this is from the book of Daniel, and um, Apocrypha means it's basically um, extra-biblical, but it's still old, and many of the Jews considered this to be sacred literature as well. So, oh, oh, okay, okay. These are the missing chap- chapters that are not included in the canon. This would be something that's in the uh, Catholic Apocrypha. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's in, it's okay. In, it's in the Catholic Bible, um, and um, also some of the ancient Jews, um, pre-Jesus, also had it in their canon of literature. Um, but one of the stories is, is about a dragon in Babylon that the Babylonians worshipped, and they considered it to be a god. And so Daniel says, <laughs> guys, there's only one God. This dragon is not a God. And so he actually makes what we would call a giant hairball um, <laughs> and, and gets the dragon to eat it, and it kills the dragon, makes him bloat and die. And they're like, oh, you killed our God. And he's like, yeah, I told you guys. Um, so it's a very, it's a very interesting story, um, but it's also ancient literature and connected with the Bible. So really quick, going back to Job, I was looking it up as you were talking. I just want to read this really quick. Um, This passage in Job where it's talking about behemoth, um, many of our Bibles have little footnotes at the bottom of the page that suggest that either this is like a hippopotamus or an elephant or, uh, um, oh, what is the other animal that's often suggested? Um, It'll come, it'll, it'll come to me. Yeah, crocodile. There you go. Um, but but I don't know, guys. You tell me. What is this thing? Uh, this is Job chapter 40, verse 15. It says, Behold now behemoth, which I made with thee. He eateth grass as an ox. Lo, now his strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. He moveth his tail like a cedar. Guys, have you ever seen a cedar? <laughs> that's that's a big tree. Uh, he moveth his tail like a cedar. So again, hippopotamus is straight out. Um, the sinews of his stones are wrapped together. His bones are as strong pieces of brass. His bones are like iron. I'm sorry, are like bars of iron. 
He's the chief of the ways of God. Okay, stop right there. Think about that. He is the chief of the ways of God. If we're not talking about a dinosaur here, what are we talking about? Because, yeah, I don't see an alligator or a crocodile being the chief of the ways of God. He that made him can make his sword to approach unto him. Surely the mountains bring him forth food where all the beasts of the field play. Uh, anyway, yeah, and it goes, it goes on from there. But um, I, I do think that's fascinating. His, he moves his tail like a cedar, a tree, uh, and his bones are strong as brass or like bars of iron. And he's described as the chief way of the ways of God. This is an incredible creature, whatever it is, it is, I mean, something, when you look at Job, especially chapter 40 and on, where God is rebuking Job, uh, as well as his friends, um, <clears throat> one of the themes that you see is that God is basically uh, saying to Job and his friends, where were you guys when I made the heavens and the earth? You know, can you even approach unto me? Can you even... Um, your ways are so unlike mine. I am so far greater and above uh, the thought processes and, you know, who you are. In other words, you know, you are not God and I am, <laughs> you know, and uh, this is just one of those examples. He goes through and talks about the weather um, and, and so many different things, but this would be another example that would silence Job and his friends. They consider the behemoth and think, wow, that is one of the chief, that, that is the chief of the ways of God. I, I mean, it is a, a, an amazing creature. So anyway, I just thought I'd take that quick rabbit trail. Um, yeah. yeah, and another, another interesting thing is there's actually well-known Bible commentators, um, John Calvin from the 1500s, he has a commentary um, on Jeremiah 51, verse 34, and um, we're talking about this, uh, you know, being swallowed by a dragon, and he says, it's, and it's in a comparison different from the former, but yet very suitable, for dragons are those who devour whole animals, and this is what the prophet means. So these comparisons do not, in everything to be yet, as the main thing, they are most appropriate, even to show that God suffers his people to be devoured that they have been exposed like, to people of the land or they're, um, they've been exposed to dragons. And so Calvin is saying, okay, the prophet's drawing analogies, and I know about dragons too. This is fascinating. <laughs> so even Calvin in the 1500s would be like, um, yeah, the Bible is talking about these different things. And here's another one. Um, Dr. John Gill, he, also, he lived in the 1700s. His commentary on Deuteronomy 32 uh, 33, and this is from a book called Dragons, Legends of Lore of Dinosaurs, um, by Buddy Hodges and Laura Welsh. Um, it's a great book. It's a very interactive. It's got pop-ups, um, but also some great history. So John Gill on Deuteronomy 32 says, um, he's talking about the poison of dragons in this context. Dragon has no poison in it yet, as Delinchaf does not write to, to other observers. Um, he has in many places prescribed remedies against the bite of dragons. But Herodotus, who is an ancient historian, expressly speaks of some archers whose arrows were infected with the poison of dragons. And Leo Africanus, another historian, says the Atlantic dragons are exceedingly poisonous, and yet other writers, like Pliony, have asserted they are free from poison. It seems the dragons of Greece are without poison, 
but those of Africa and Arabia are, and that these Moses had expected being well known to him. And this gets to the passage of the, the fire flaming serpents and the episode where the serpents are biting the Israelite people and they're dying. And um, this Deuteronomy passage, he speaks, he's commenting on this, and he's basically is saying, you know, these, these other scientists have said, okay, these dragons are poisonous, these aren't. Um, he's treating these as real things, if that makes sense in this commentary. So quite fascinating. There are several other commentaries um, from the 1700s by Bible scholars are likening the Bible passages and saying, yes, and we know about these things too. Right, yeah, those fiery flying serpents. Uh, it's also mentioned in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 29. Uh, there's also a mention in uh, chapter 30, verse 6. It is uh, Nachash Seraph. Um, and yeah, and in Isaiah it says, Rejoice not thou whole Palestine, because the rod of him that smote thee is broken. For out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cocteris, what is that? And its fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. It's the same word that's used in Deuteronomy. Uh, um, oh boy, forgive me, that was Deuteronomy, right? Uh, Deuteronomy 33, <laughs> I believe. Okay, yeah, uh, I could I could see that happening in different parts of the, the the first five books of the Bible. So yeah, where where these serpents are moving through the camp of Israel, and you know you think about it, if if there was a ser- you know a whole bunch of serpents slithering around on the ground, you know I don't know about you guys, but I've stepped pretty close to uh, serpents before myself. In fact, I I walked outside one day here in Colorado and. My, uh, I was barefoot, it was in the summertime, and my heel landed within, literally within about half an inch of the nose of a rattlesnake. And I'll tell you what, when a person wants to move fast, <laughs> you can move pretty fast. And I can imagine these serpents going through the camp of Israel, and uh, I don't know, it, it just seems... It seems like a stretch to think it's serpents that are really causing this plague Maybe it is. Maybe they're just regular serpents. Um, but it is the same word that's being used here in Isaiah for a fiery flying serpent. Yeah. It, I mean, what does that sound like? And I think it's important to understand the Bible in its historical context, its cultural context. The Babylonians have pictures of dragons on their walls. Um, the ancient culture, cultures are replete with dragon figurines. Um, there's uh, hundreds of historical records from... Uh, Herodotus to, um, uh, we talk about Marco Polo, um, other explorers, uh, who, who did things. There's artists who depicted these things. So in the whole context of things, and then you add the science information we talked about earlier, the plausibility of this explanation increases. And, um, today it's just a jackal. You know, uh, the, the dragon word just means jackal, um, becomes less plausible in many of the, uh, the contexts of the Hebrew where that word is used. Right. I think it's, it's interesting to note, too, that uh, there's so much artwork that depicts flying serpents that, um, in, in many cases, even breathe fire. Yeah. And, and um, now there has been lots of room for uh, maybe some legends with the fire. Um, we know that a lot of animals have bioluminescence which means they glow at night. 
Um, we have okay. places that already do that. And so if you saw, for example, a pteranodon or a pterodactyl flying through the sky and it glows, and you're an ancient, you would call that fire. Okay. That's okay. I see where you're going. Serpent, right? So sure. it may not be breathing fire, but it's glowing. And what glows in your world? Fire. So if you don't understand bioluminescence, you're going to call that light essentially fire. These animals have fire within themselves. And so I think that's a very plausible bridge explanation. Um, sure. You have creatures like the bombardier beetle that create yes. some pretty interesting things. And there's some things we found in dinosaur and their heads in different cavities that we're not quite sure what they use them for. Um, there you go. And so the, the possibility is there. Um, but I think we could have both. We could have both sure. luminescence and some kind of chemical reactions going on um, that are described by the ancients. Right. And, um, yeah, just, friends, if you're not familiar with this bombardier beetle, and I'm, I'm probably going to completely massacre this. Um, but David, if you know more about this beetle than I do, feel free to jump in. But basically there are multiple compartments within this beetle that uh, can store various combustible uh, uh, chemicals. One of the chemicals is combustible. Another one is some kind of an inhibitor that keeps it from combusting. Uh, another chemicals like an igniter. Boy, I wish I had some notes in front of me to give you specifics. But for the most part, how this works is the bombardier beetle fires these chemicals out of his hind end. And uh, if I remember right, the chemicals hit each other. They unite in the air behind the hind end of this beetle. And then it it's like a, a small explosion, a superheated explosion that, that burns and fries whatever um, enemy, whatever predator is trying to sneak up on the bombardier beetle and eat it. Yeah. So there, there are many things that we are just discovering. For example, I believe it's this last year, we just discovered um, an insect that has meshing gears in its legs that help it to jump. Whoa. Um, and that's been out in the science news recently. But we didn't know about that before. So um, uh, so there's a lot of things that we're still discovering, and I think that's where humanity and science have to be humble and say, you know, we, there's so much we're still exploring, and say, is this a possibility? It's possible. Um, is it scientifically viable? Well, we're working on that. And so I think we need to give... Um, we've been taught that the ancients were dumb and stupid, and they evolved from cavemen. <laughs> um, the ancients were brilliant. They did. They they created things that we still don't know how they created. The pyramids are a great example. Um, the, the the astronomical alignments of, of stone megaliths and different things like that. Um, they were super smart. And um, the puzzle of ancient man is a great book on that. Um, that kind of goes into um, the things that the ancients created that were like. Even the Vikings had what's called a sunstone that we just found in the last five years as a crystal that they could hold up in the clouds and you couldn't really see the sun, and the UV rays would hit it and they could align the crystal to the sun so they could navigate. In cloudy weather, oh, wow. it's called a sunstone, and they actually found it. It was a legend, so they'd actually found some of these sunstones. So the ancients, they were no fool. When they give us descriptions, I think we should listen a bit more. Right. 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, 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 you know, the, the idea that there is, you know, I know the Bible talks about Leviathan breathing fire. Um, the idea that fire could originate somewhere in, I don't know, the stomach or the throat and come out the mouth, boy, your, your gums and your teeth would suffer immensely. You might even cook your brain. But what if this creature had the ability to project just like the bombardier beetle, um, several different chemicals out of its mouth that would meet in the air in front of its face. Yeah. Uh, then that same creature would not burn himself, but only its enemy. And that makes sense. And we also have a precedent of, of other creatures, fish, um, that have bioluminescence that create lights to attract um, prey. And so oh, like, sure. Yeah. Why wouldn't a creature like that attract, you know, be designed to create some kind of fire to attract prey? Um, oh, that's an interesting so thought. There's also um, plausibility with that as well. And so I think it's, it's really fascinating. Um, I know hopefully next week we'll talk a little bit about um, there's so many things that humans weren't able to observe for hundreds of years. And according to materialism, those things weren't real. Microscopic worlds, UV light, um, ultraviolet light, um, infrared light, um, so many things that if you're a materialistic scientist, you say, well, we can't observe it, therefore it's not real. Um, so that says, ah, our science is tied to humanity. If our culture falls apart, if we get, you know, ancient cultures got wiped out by catastrophes, their science disappeared. How omniscient is that? <laughs> and so right. scientists and our observations are tied to humanity. And um, even Darwin himself said, you know, if we're evolved from monkeys and apes and we don't trust their convictions, how do we know we can trust ours? <laughs> and I think oh, he's being really honest there in, in one of his letters to a friend and just saying, you know, humans need to be humble when we say, yeah, this is, you know, this is what we know so far, but there's many things that we don't yet know. And uh, so that's one of my goals is to give students and young people um, a supernatural worldview. It says God is the primacy where I get my revelation, not human understanding. And that's yeah. really important. That's really important. That if you can get that in context, then the whole dinosaur thing becomes less of an issue. It's fun, right. but you have a supernatural worldview that's robust that can handle pretty much anything that materialism can throw at it. Okay, well, friends, we're going to stop right there. Uh, I can see this is going to be a two-part podcast. So uh, next time, when we speak to David Harrison, we're going to be talking about um, some of the archaeological finds uh, that support the idea that dinosaurs and mankind have walked together. We're going to be looking at uh, some pottery, some stones, some artwork. We're also going to be looking at some uh, uh, historical writings. Okay, that is fascinating. Uh, we have historical writings where historians have described encounters with uh, giant lizard-like creatures um, you're not going to you're not going to want to miss this. This is just fascinating. If dinosaurs did not walk with mankind, why do we have uh, artwork and historical writings from all over the world depicting man and dinosaur interactions? 
fascinating. So don't miss that. And don't forget to visit David Harrison's website, sparklightplanet.com. And with that, I love you guys, and I'll see you next week.